church, take your Bible and open to Colossians chapter 3. There is an outline in the bulletin. This morning we begin a new chapter in the book of Colossians. We made it to chapter 3, but the theme, the, the driving constant in this book is the same, regardless of what chapter you're in. And that driving theme is the idea that Colossians is a book, it's a book all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We've seen this in a number of ways in Colossians up to this point. We've talked about Colossians 1.18 that says Jesus is preeminent, he's supreme, he's first place. We've talked about Jesus being the Lord of creation. He's the creator and he's the Lord of redemption. He's the one who has saved his people from their sins. Paul's talked about Jesus as the head of the church, the, the authority of the church, the supreme one in the church. Paul talks about Jesus as the one in whom, if you can wrap your mind around this miracle, he's the one in whom the fullness of deity, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. He is the God-man. We talked recently about Jesus being the only source of our salvation. You can't dilute him. You can't have a little bit of Jesus with a little bit of mysticism. You can't have a little bit of Jesus with a little bit of legalism. It's Christ and Christ alone for the Christian. Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Christ. Now, I want to make a couple of observations about Paul's letters generally that I think are important when we come to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. In several of Paul's letters, he begins with doctrine, and then he moves to application. And what I mean is the first half of the book is largely devoted to doctrine and theology, and the back end of the book is largely devoted to practical application. And I think the clearest examples of this are Romans, Ephesians, and the book we're studying on Sunday mornings, Colossians. In the first half of these books, there's heavy doctrine deep theology, but then there's a shift at some point in the middle, and he begins to talk about why this doctrine matters and how it applies to our everyday lives. Now, I want to be clear. In the front halves of these letters, these books, Paul talks about practical things. He applies the doctrine as he goes, and when he gets to the end of the letters, he's not done talking about doctrine. He's not finished talking about theology, but there is a pattern that's observable. As Paul begins by laying a foundation of doctrine, and then he moves toward application, and I think it's a pattern that we ought to pay attention to. I think it's fair to say in the United States of America, just by way of friendly observation, that most churches and most pastors are primarily concerned with application rather than doctrine and theology. I think this bears out when you listen to preachers in typical churches, even right here in Odessa, Texas. I think this bears out when you get on iTunes or wherever you download sermon podcasts and you see who are the top-rated preachers and sermon podcasts on the internet. What is most common is preaching that does not give a lot of attention to doctrine or theology, but tries to tell people this is how you ought to live. It's heavy on the application, but there's no doctrinal foundation to it. I've had pastors and ministry leaders right here in Odessa, Texas, look me in the eye and say, you know, we just don't do doctrine much. We just try to focus on Jesus. We don't spend a lot of time on theology. We just want to help people understand what God wants them to do. 
Essentially what they're saying is, we don't want Romans 1 to 11, Ephesians 1 to 3, and Colossians 1 to 2. We don't have time for that. And the folly of that statement, the folly of that approach is that you can't not do doctrine. Everyone does doctrine. You either do it faithfully and biblically, or you do it faithlessly and heretically. But everyone does doctrine. So there's a a group of people, I'd say the largest group of people, when you look at Christians in the United States that don't give a lot of attention to doctrine. I do think it's worth pointing out that there is a smaller group that is trying to push back against that, and some on this opposite side have swung the pendulum so far to the other side that all they want to do is talk about doctrine, all they want to do is talk about theology, all they want to do is hunt for heretics, all they want to do is argue about this or that, they don't want to serve God's people in the context of a local church, and they don't want to lift a finger to share the gospel with those who need to hear the gospel. They just want to argue about theology and doctrine. And all I'm saying is, I think there's some wisdom in Paul's pattern in these letters. I think there's something that we as a church ought to try to emulate. We need a doctrinal foundation. We need a theological base. But we also need to apply that doctrine and that theology to our life as a church, to our lives and our families, to our lives as we go out into the world on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. One more observation here. In these letters, I'm specifically talking about Romans, Ephesians, and Colossians. When Paul turns from doctrine to application... In all three of these letters, he begins with an appeal to our mind. Meaning, when he begins to shift from doctrine and theology toward what it is that he wants us to do, he doesn't start with an action list of things you need to go out there and do. He actually starts with something internal. He starts with our minds. So in the book of Romans, when this shift happens in Romans 12, Paul talks about the renewing of your mind. You have got to be serious about the renewing of your mind by submitting your mind and your thoughts and your thinking to the authority of God's word. In Ephesians, he talks about you need to walk worthy of the calling that you've received. And he goes on to say, lucky for you, fortunate for you, the Lord God has provided his church with pastors and leaders and shepherds and teachers so that you are not tossed about by every wind of doctrine. That comes along. He wants them to think rightly about doctrine, and the same pattern holds here in Colossians as Paul calls us to seek things above and to set our minds on things above. So that brings us to the big idea of this passage. The Christian is called to seek and to think on things that are above. Christians are called to be thinking people. Thinking people. This is part of what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Jesus described it. Loving God with your mind, being a thinking person. And specifically, in the book that Paul wrote, the letter that he wrote to the church in Colossae, as he begins to shift from the doctrinal foundation to practical application, what he's saying is, I want you to seek and I want you to think about things that are above. So look with me, if you will, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read verse 1 to verse 4. This is a short passage this week. Paul says this, 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In the year 2003, Johnny Cash passed away. He has not stopped publishing music. His estate has posthumously released a number of albums since he passed away in 2003. Uh, This last week I listened to a a series of four albums his estate uh, has put out called Bootleg, Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3, and Volume 4. And there's a song on Bootleg Volume 1. The song is titled No Earthly Good. No earthly good. This is what the refrain says in the song, No Earthly Good. You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Have you heard your grandma say that before? Your grandpa, I don't know. seems kind of like an old-timey statement to me. I don't hear a lot of teenagers running around saying, oh, you're so, you're so uh, heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. What Cash talks about in the song, you can listen to it, you can pull up the lyrics. He's talking about people who boast and they brag about their spirituality. They talk a good Jesus game, but when you look at their life, they don't actually care about the people that God has put around them. They're not looking for opportunities to serve. They're not looking for opportunities to help. They're not even looking for opportunities necessarily to share their faith or to share the gospel. They are just so focused on their own spiritual world and their relationship with the Lord that they are of no good to anybody else around them. Now, I love Johnny Cash, and I listened to this song multiple times this week, but I tend to agree with something that another pastor said commenting on this sentiment, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. John Piper says this. He says, yes, I know. It is possible to be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly use. My problem is I've never met one of those people. And I suspect if I met one, the problem would not be that his mind is full of the glories of heaven, but that his mind is empty and his mouth is full of platitudes. I suspect that for every professing believer who is useless in this world because of otherworldliness, there are a hundred who are useless because of this worldliness. So I don't know how you feel about the sentiment, but I tend to agree with this. I think the greater danger for Christians in the United States of America today is probably not that we will be overly, too, excessively, heavenly minded, rather that we will tend towards the opposite error, that our minds will be focused on the things of this earth rather than the things that are above. And the call in this passage, as Paul lays it out, as he begins to apply the doctrine of this letter is, be heavenly minded. There's actually two commands in these four verses. The first command is in verse 1 where Paul says, seek the things that are above. That's an imperative. That's a command. Paul is saying not that you ought to consider doing this, but that you ought to do it. 
You must do it. If you have trusted in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must be a person who is seeking things that are above. That word seek is the same word you'll find in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 33, when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and all of these other earthly things, your food and your clothing and your daily needs will be added to you. Seek these things. This is a matter of your heart. It's a matter of desire. It's a matter of direction in your life. Seek, Paul says, the things that are above. Here's the second command, and it just goes right alongside it. It's the same idea. He says in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. The translation here is not just think. Think is probably, although I put it in the big idea, it's probably too weak of a word. He doesn't just want Christians to think about these things, but he wants their minds to be set on these things. What does that look like? Maybe it looks like a teenager whose face is in a screen and they're oblivious to the world around them because they have set their mind on whatever they're watching on YouTube. I'm picking on teenagers. I've seen a lot of you do the same thing. We can be so oblivious to what's happening around us that we are completely living inside of the screen in front of us. That's probably a good picture of what it means to set your mind on something. You don't hear the background noise. You're not distracted. You're not bothered by anything else. You're completely locked in to what's happening on that screen. Paul says, you need to set your mind not on the things of this earth, but you need to set your mind on the things that are above. Now here's what we're gonna try to make sense of this morning. There's two commands in this passage. Seek the things above and set your mind on the things above. If we're gonna do those things, which I think is really one thing. It's the same thing that Paul's describing two different ways. If we're going to seek the things above and set our minds on the things above, you and I need to be clear on the things above. What does Paul have in mind when he's saying the things above? That's what we're going to wrestle with this morning. We're going to talk about this first. Things that are above in our past. We'll start in the past. We're talking about Christians at this point in the letter. Things that are above in our past. Well, Paul says here that Christians have died. They've experienced a death of sorts. And we've been now raised with Christ. These are things that have happened in the past if you are a Christian. Things that happened at the moment of conversion. Look what he says in verse 3. You have died. He's writing to believers, to Christians. And he says, one of the things that's happened in your past is that you died. That's a strange thing to write to people who are living, is it not? You died. Look what he says in verse 1. You have been raised. You've been raised. You've experienced a resurrection of sorts, and you have died. You've experienced a death of sorts. This is the way the Bible talks about conversion. It's the way the Bible talks about new birth or regeneration. This is what happens when a a person becomes a follower of Jesus. And Jesus described it like this in John 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it actually bears much fruit. 
Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's a strange way to talk about life. It makes absolutely no sense to our culture today. Our culture today says your life is the most important thing that you have. You should love it. You should treasure it. You should seek to live it to the fullest. You should find whatever desire is in your heart and live it out. And Jesus says, actually, you should do the opposite of that. If you love your life, you're going to end up losing it. And if you want to keep it, then you actually have to experience a death of sorts. Look how Jesus described it in another passage, Mark 8. He called the crowd to him with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. You got to take up a cross and die if you actually want to live. And if you don't want to experience that kind of death, that dying to sin and dying to self, you'll never know true life. You'll actually lose your life. It's a strange way to talk about life and death and eternity and our purpose here on this earth. It certainly makes no sense in a modern or a postmodern Western context where the self is the center of everything. Jesus is saying, give up on yourself, die to self, die to sin, and find life in the good news of the gospel. In the United States of America, we have largely ignored what Jesus said in Matthew 12 and Mark 8. We've largely ignored what Paul talks about here in you have died and you have been raised. And instead, what we have asked people to do, we have reduced all of that down to, will you please make a decision? We just want people to make a decision. Will you just give mental assent to these facts about God and Jesus and sin and heaven and hell. Just agree, just a, a head nod, just a hand raised, just a card signed. Just give assent to these facts. Jesus wasn't looking for people who would just give assent to facts. He was looking for people who were willing to die so that they might live. This is pictured in baptism, and we read what Paul said in Romans 6 earlier for this point. When Paul talks about baptism in Romans chapter 6, he says baptism is a picture of what has happened when you are converted and you become a true follower of Jesus. You are buried in the waters of baptism, underneath the waters of judgment, picturing your death, but you are raised out of those waters to walk in newness of life. You've been raised. There's been a death to sin and self, and there's been a resurrection to newness of life. Some of you, it's quite possible, have never experienced that. You've done church stuff. You've done religious ritual all of your life. You've prayed prayers. It's entirely possible that you've made a decision for Jesus, or if we're honest, you've made multiple decisions for Jesus. But what's never actually happened is this dying to sin and self and by God's grace being raised to walk in newness of life. Paul says, if you are a Christian, you should seek these things and set your mind on these things. If you're a Christian, that has happened in your past and you should give thought to it. 
You should go back and think about the fact, I'm a follower of Jesus. That means I have died to sin and self, and I have been called by God's powerful mercy to walk in a new way of life. You should think about those things. Some of you can't look back and think on those things. You can't set your mind on those things in your life because it's never happened in your life. And by God's grace, it can happen. You can confess your sin to God. You can believe the good news about Jesus Christ. You can put your hope not in your own ability to earn your way with God, but in what Christ has done for you, dying to sin and self, trusting in Jesus. That's the first thing that Paul wants us to think about and to seek. Things above, that starts with things in our past. Secondly, let's talk about things that are above in our present. Things above in our present. Christ, our life, is seated at the right hand of God and our life is hidden with him. When we think about these present things above, we're looking for the English word is. Present tense. This is true now. It shows up three places in this particular passage. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, Christ who is your life. Christ is your life. If you're a Christian, even now, the fact that you have life, spiritual life, comes from Christ, not from yourself. Christ is your life. Look at verse 1. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That is true right now. The resurrected, living Lord Jesus Christ, who is your life, is seated at God's right hand. Look at verse 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Even now, for the Christian, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So let's just think about those one at a time. Christ is our life. He presently is our life. Certainly, there's a, a reference here to eternal life. We have eternal, spiritual, true, genuine life because we are connected to Christ. We have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think Paul's driving at something even a little bit deeper than that. I think what he's saying here, in addition to having eternal life in Jesus, is that Jesus is now the center of our lives. He's the center of our lives. Everything else in our life revolves around him. This is what little children say when they wear a t-shirt that says, baseball is life. This is what the teenager means when they say, video games are life. This is what the, the true Texas football fan means when he says, the Dallas Cowboys, who are going to win today, are life. This is what a, a Texan, any Texan means when they say, tacos are life. This is what a parent means when they post a picture of their kids on social media and they say, this child is my life. It's what a grandparent means when they either pull out their phone or if they're struggling with their phone, they pull out the old billfold picture accordion fold and they say, these grandkids are my life. It's the center. It's so important to me. Look, we've asked people to make a decision about Jesus and then largely go on with their lives. What Jesus asked people to do is to die to sin and self and to make him the center. Jesus is our life. 
That's an unseen reality for the believer. Paul describes it this way in Galatians 2. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. There's that idea of dying. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've died, and now Jesus is at the very center of my life. He describes it this way to the church in Philippi, Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Living is Christ. He gives me eternal life, but he's also the center, the driving force. You could even say in Colossians, the supreme one in my life. Christ is our life. Secondly, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul says that. That's a a present, unseen spiritual truth. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There is an allusion here to Psalm 110, and you can look that passage up later on your own. Jesus quoted Psalm 110. He quoted it to make the point that he was God in human flesh. This is what it means to sit at the right hand of God. It's to share in his position. God will not share his position with anyone or anything who is not God, but he shares it with the Son who is God in human flesh. He shares his position. He shares his power. He is seated at the right hand. It makes sense when we read in Colossians that in Jesus, the fullness of God, the fullness of deity is pleased to dwell. And he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. What is he doing sitting at the Father's right hand? The Bible says he is interceding for God's people. He is praying for God's people. He is taking your concerns and your struggles and your anxieties and he is bringing them before the Father. An inter-Trinitarian conversation is taking place between God the Son and God the Father as the Son currently sits at his right hand. One more thing Paul says is that our life is hidden with Christ in God. Right now, that's true for the Christian. Your life currently, today, at this moment, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have died and you are walking in new life, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Something hidden is something that you cannot see. It's something that has not been yet revealed. And that idea of a revelation is tied up in this passage. In verse 4, Paul talks about Christ appearing and our appearing. Literally what he's talking about is Christ being revealed and our being revealed. Things that are hidden will at one point in the future be revealed. And right now your life is hidden with Christ in God. When you leave today, if you're trying to beat the Methodist to the restaurant, and Odessa's finest pull you over to the side of the road, they're going to ask for you to prove a couple of things. They're going to want you to prove that you are a licensed driver. And they're going to want you to prove that you have insurance. And the way you're going to do that is you're going to open your billfold or your purse and you're going to hand them your driver's license. You're going to open your glove box or maybe even an app on your phone. And you're going to show them your insurance card. And you're going to show them. You're going to reveal to them, yes. I am, in fact, a licensed driver, and I do, in fact, have insurance. The question is, how do we show to people the fact that our life is hidden 
with Christ in God. Well, one of the ways you show it is through baptism. You submit joyfully and gladly to believers' baptism, and you say, my life is now tied up in the life of Christ. I have died to sin and self, and I am united to Jesus by faith. But on a day-to-day basis, how do you actually do this? How do you show this to someone? Maybe a good way for you to show this would be to pick up an Emmanuel sticker in the lobby and make sure you put it on your car. Those of you who have an Emmanuel sticker on your car, you better not be an angry driver, by the way. Just take it off if you're going to drive hateful. Maybe that would show everybody. Maybe you could get an Emmanuel t-shirt. Or if you really want to show people, you could get a a Kenya Nourishing the Nations t-shirt from Pastor Chris. What is it that we could do to show the world that our life is hidden with Christ in God? There's a lot of things we could do to show the world that we are following Jesus, but how do you show someone this invisible present reality? It's kind of tricky, and I think the answer comes in what we're going to say in just a minute. Right now, before we talk about the future, just understand this. You can put an Emmanuel sticker on your car, and your life may or may not be hidden with Christ in God. You can wear an Emmanuel T-shirt. You can post follower of Jesus Christian, my life is hidden with Christ and God, as your Facebook profile or your Twitter profile or your Instagram profile or whatever profile you have on social media. And it may or may not be true. This is an invisible reality. You cannot see now, but Paul says it's true. This is not something of the earth. This is something above. And what Paul is saying is these present realities are things that you as the Christian ought to think about. You gotta think about these things. You gotta think about the fact that Christ is life to you. He is life to you. You should give thought to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father now. You give thought to the fact that your life is hidden with Christ in God, it is kept, it is secure with the Lord Jesus Christ who is sitting at the Father's right hand. You should think about these things. You should seek these things. One last thing that we need to make make clear. Things that are above in our future. We've talked about the past. We've talked about our present. Let's talk about our future. Christ will be revealed and Christians will share in his glory. The hiddenness of your life in Christ will not always be hidden. There will be a day when it's revealed for you and for all to see. Colossians 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, that's a future thing, when that happens, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ will be revealed for every eye to see, for every tongue to confess, for every knee to bow. In this unseen, things above reality that your life as a Christian has been united to his and is hidden in Christ will be revealed when you uh, appear with him in glory. Look, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, your hope and your confidence is not, it must not be in the here and now, it must be in things above, things to come in the future. Let's look at several of these verses. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await 
a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are waiting for him to be revealed. We don't see him as king now. That's an unseen thing. That's a thing above. But we are waiting, longing, praying for his revelation. 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Look, right now this is true, you are with the Lord and your life is kept in heaven by Christ, with God. But a day is coming where it will no longer be a hidden, unseen reality. It will just be reality. And we will be with the Lord. We wait for that. We long for that. One last passage, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Your life now is hidden with Christ in God. That's a present reality. We are his children now. And what we will be in the future has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The Christian is called to think about these things, to think about our future in Christ when what is hidden is revealed. Now, all of that stuff is in the, the unseen realm, the spiritual realm. All that stuff falls under the heading or the category of things above. You and I live here, not above, not yet. We live here, here and now, in a very physical world where your five senses all operate and are important. We see things, and we see what's real. We live right now, and we have responsibilities. I, I heard a, a preacher this week at a conference I was at. He, he used a quote from C.T. Studd, a great evangelist, famous quote, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And he shared the quote from C.T. Studd, and he was making the point, same point that Studd was trying to make, we have stuff to do now. We have things to do now. You have things to do today. You have things to do this week. You have things to do on this earth. You have responsibilities, and you need to take them seriously because only what's done now for Christ will last in the end. And so this pastor shared this quote, and he was saying to pastors, you need to shepherd your flock well. To men, he was saying, love your wives and teach your children. To wives, he was saying, support your husband and contribute to your family in a godly, helpful way. To children, you have something to do now, today. Honor your parents, respect your parents in the Lord for this is right. Church, you have stuff to do today. You have food to gather for people who are struggling. You have boxes to send for children who need the gospel. You have a world missions offering to collect. You have teams to send to Kenya. You have Sunday school lessons to teach. We have things to do here and now. All of those good things. All of those godly things. And yet when Paul starts to apply the doctrine that he's laid out in the first half of Colossians, he doesn't send us out to do anything immediately, but he sends us out to think and to use our minds, specifically to seek and to set our minds on things that are above. So we'll end with these questions. 
questions for the Christian. Number one, do I spend time thinking about what Christ has done for me? That's the past. Do you give thought to that? Do you give thought to it outside of your 30, 40 minute Sunday school lesson and my 30, 40 minute sermon and the time we spend in this room during the week? Do you actually give thought to that? I mean, I know you're busy. Everybody gets busy. You have a lot of stuff to do. You have TV shows you want to watch. You have uh, jobs to clock into and clock out of. Your kids and your grandkids have activities. Do you ever just stop to think about and to set your mind on what Christ has done for you before the foundation of the world in the past? He loved you. Knowing your sin, Christian, he loved you. In the fullness of time, he took the form of a servant. He lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for sinners. Do you think about these things? Do you think about these things? Secondly, do I spend time thinking about what Christ is doing for me? What he is doing now, today, seated at the right hand on the throne of the universe. We give a lot of attention to local ballot initiatives and state runoffs and presidential elections and all the geopolitical events happening in this world, do you ever stop to think, do we as Christians ever just stop to think outside of sitting in this room at church, do you stop to think about what Christ is now doing for you? Seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf. Thirdly, do I spend time thinking about what Christ will do for me? Do I look to the future with hope and anticipation to the day that Christ is revealed and our union with him, our hiddenness, the hiddenness of our life in him is revealed for all to see? Do I think about that? Do I set my mind to that? Do I seek that? I know we all have things to do here and now, today, this week, this month, before the year ends. We have responsibilities. You need to do those things. You only have one life and it will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. There are things to do. Paul reminds us there are also things to think about. And the challenge of Colossians 3.1 is that you and I would not be so earthly minded, so earthly focused, so earthly busy that we never stop to think about heaven, that we don't set our minds on the things that are above.